Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. on WFIU. I'm Bob Salzberg from the WFIU WTIU newsroom, along with co-host Sarah Whitmire, our news bureau chief. We're recording the show from many different locations today to avoid the risk of spreading coronavirus. And today we're talking to the Indy Star reporters who broke the story about USA Gymnastics mishandling allegations of sexual assault and the attorney who represented many of these women. We have four guests with us today. We have Marissa Kwiatkowski, USA Today investigative reporter and a former reporter for the Indy Star. Tim Evans, an investigative and consumer reporter for the Indy Star. Steve Berta, the Indy Star investigations team leader and John Manley, an attorney for Manley, Stewart, and Finality Lawyers, and he has represented many of the women involved in these cases. You can follow us on Twitter today at Noon Edition, and you can send us questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. Well, thank you all for joining us today. I wanted to start out by also acknowledging the uh, documentary Athlete A on Netflix, um, I would encourage everybody who's interested in this topic to watch that documentary. It will tell the, it tells the full story of this and it will, we'll do our very best to tell the full story here today, but the Netflix documentary, I think does a really good job of that. And I also want to acknowledge um, my Hoosier journalism colleagues, um, Marissa, Tim and Steve, and also Mark Alicia for the work they did on this. Uh, it was Pulitzer Prize worthy work. It was fantastic work. So uh, having, being able to say that as the host of the show, I wanted to start out by asking Steve Berta about uh, this, you know, how did this all begin? I mean, when did you as the investigations team leader know that you had something really big on your hands? Steve, I think you're muted. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, Th those are uh, actually two separate questions in a way, because when we first uh, encountered this, Marissa was working on a story about why schools in our area were not reporting child sexual abuse as required by the law. And so she was doing a kind of a general story about, about why institutions don't report. And uh, she got a tip from a, a local attorney who uh, told her, well, we ought to look at USA Gymnastics. And there was a, uh, there was a lawsuit going on in Georgia at the time uh, in which uh, somebody was claiming that, uh, that USA Gymnastics had been warned about a uh, coach who was molested, was dangerous and, and uh, allowed him to continue to have a membership in the organization and that, that he had subsequently went on to molest other children. We sent Marissa down to Georgia immediately to get uh, the court documents because they were about to be sealed. And, um, 
when she came back, we sort of looked over that uh, what we had and we realized that they had a policy, but we really didn't know at that time. Uh, and the policy was to not report allegations of child sexual abuse unless it was a the form of a signed letter from either the victim or, or I mean the survivor or the the survivor's parent or an eyewitness and we we realized that that had potential to damage a lot of people there were a lot of members of the organization who were uh young children and uh but we didn't really know that it had damaged them. So our next step was to try to find out. And, uh, and that's, that's what we did. And it was only later that we realized the scope of the uh, damage. So Marissa, could you sort of take up the story from there? Sure, so as Steve mentioned, you know, we came back with hundreds of pages of records that detailed what their policy had been and so our next step was really looking at the impact of that policy. And so Mark Alicia and Tim Evans and I started backgrounding more than 100 coaches. And we were looking at policies and information to see what the impact of that policy had been on the safety of children. And specifically, we were looking for examples of situations in which USA Gymnastics had been warned about a predatory individual had not reported it to authorities, and then that individual went on to abuse other athletes. And so that was really our focus at that time. And we pursued that for about four and a half months before our per first piece came out. And that piece detailed that policy and the fact that there were, um, in that first wave of articles that we did, dozens of athletes who had been abused after USA Gymnastics had been warned about an individual. So if I remember right, it was Rachel Den Hollander that came forward and first allowed her name to be used. Is, is that correct? Actually, Rachel read that first article that came out and she came and reached out to us after that. So when we published the first article, Larry Nasser was not on our radar. We were aware of who he was, but we had not received any allegations of misconduct relating to him at that time. It wasn't until we published the first piece in our investigation that we learned about allegations against Larry. And Rachel was the first person to put him on our radar. Okay. Now, if I, again, if I remember right, he called, or she called Mark and left a message for Mark, or was it Tim? Tim? Actually, she contacted all three of us via email. And I initially replied just, you know, thanking her for reaching out. We had gotten dozens of such emails and, and phone calls. And then it was uh, after in the next week that we were looking at all of the individuals that we needed to investigate that Mark took Rachel's initial email and reached out to her. Okay. So, Tim, what was your first involvement? Um, loneliness and jealousy. Um, it started out, it was Mark and Marissa uh, for the first couple of weeks or so. And I, I had written, I was kind of felt like I was on the outside looking in. I was starting a new new kind of role at the star. And so I got dragged in and then, um, you know, initially we all worked on the backgrounding of the coaches to try to find that cause and effect from the policy. And then after that first story ran, which ran the day before the Olympics, Rio Olympics started, um, 
again, like Marissa said, we were bombarded by other complaints about a number of different coaches uh, and officials in the sport. And um, Marissa went after um, uh, uh, Jane Doe, who became Jamie Dancher. Mark followed up on um, Rachel. And my job was to find out, uh, looking at NASA, if there was any acceptable medical procedure that would uh, fit the description that we had received. And then also to kind of do the perfunctory uh, outreach to NASA as attorney to get there, no comment. And I, I sent NASA an email and I was surprised by the next morning, I had two emails back from him wanting to talk to us. Mm -hmm. And if you could, you know, I know there's a lot of, a lot in this that is kind of sensitive, but if you could talk about, you know, the medical procedure and, and what you were, and the, the different physicians you were talking to about that. I was talking to uh, osteopathic uh, physicians uh, and um, you know, they, they said that there would be a rare instance where there might be an intravaginal penetration uh, for uh, pelvic floor issues, um, but that it would most likely be with a middle-aged woman or a woman after childbirth. It certainly wouldn't be for young girls, uh, teenage or pre-teenage girls and not to heal, um, not to work on back or leg or arm injuries. And so um, we also had the interesting thing with, with from what we got from Jamie and um, in the movie, there's a call from Jessica Howard that, that they played who called Mark. She was a national rhythmic gymnast and they all told us the exact same story. You know, it was, it was strikingly similar, you know, down to the details. So one of the things I would that, that came out and was critical in our thinking was he didn't use any gloves. He often did this without a parent's consent. And, um, you know, or without another person in the room. So we wanted to find out what, if indeed somebody used a procedure like that, what would the uh, professional standards be? And again, uh, everything that Nasser did seemed to be a violation of those standards, which gave us confidence that there was something going on here beyond uh, a legitimate medical practice. All right, we'll get back to the uh, professional standards and gymnastics here in, in a minute. But John Manley, you're an attorney. And how does this... Uh, how does this sort of match up with legal standards? What, 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 what did you think when you first, when you started hearing stories and who came to you first? Yeah. The, so good morning or good afternoon. I'm still on the West coast. Um, the, the first person that contacted me was Jamie Danter and Jamie was a, a bronze medalist from 2000, an incredibly successful NCAA gymnast. She still has the record for the most perfect tens. And she told me this story about Larry Nasser, and I didn't know who Larry Nasser was. And I went on the, the internet and he, he had hundreds of videos posted. And so I, I did what I would do diligence. I contacted physicians. I spoke to, um, you know, I had people review the videos and I was convinced at the end of it that what he was doing was sexual assault. Um, and so, uh, you know, but what drove her out of the shadows was the Indie Star article. Um, and that's when she called me. And when basically after that, at one point, I called Marissa and sort of said, hey, do you know who Larry Nasser is? Have you ever heard anything about this? Because I've been doing this for 25 years. And, you know, sometimes there's only one victim, but rarely. And, you know, that's when we began to, my office began to put the pieces together. And, you know, we ended up with over um, representing over 200 of the 333 survivors in the first wave against uh, Nance Nazareth. So I remember uh, 
Steve, you said in the in the documentary at one point, you said Larry Nasser, you know, is not our target. USA Gymnastics, you know, wound up being your target. Could you address that a little bit? Again, I think you're muted. Yes, so. yeah. Uh, yeah. really, uh, that was the case from the beginning for us, and we came on to Larry Nasser, and. Uh, and it became a national story, but we continued uh, to report on the culture within USA Gymnastics, which was uh, a pretty harsh situation, which led to uh, these girls were essentially, uh, one of the things that they have to overcome in gymnastics is the extreme fear that they have of performing these very complex moves on say a balance beam and so the way that that they did that in our gymnastics community was to fear they they actually the coaches made themselves more fearful than the 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 injury that these kids would have so there was a very harsh environment for a lot of these elite gymnasts and Larry Nasser was this kind of nice guy, and I think that comes through in the film very well, uh, who, who uh, you know, sort of endeared himself and gave him candy and, and stuff like this to the kids and told them he was their friend. And this, as we started to see this environment, we started to realize, you know, how bad it was. And, and uh, at the time, we really didn't even know uh, that, um, to the extent to which they were hiding things, you know, and and so we dug into that, and we we later it came out that uh, that uh, Steve Penny, the uh, president and CEO of USA Gymnastics, was uh, uh, was working very closely with law enforcement officials in ways to try to keep the story quiet and. Uh, and, uh, and this was, uh, you know, became the focus in that second year of our investigation was his relationship with uh, Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department's head of the child uh, abuse unit, who uh, uh, actually uh, contacted us and tried to discourage us from doing the story. And uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, the lead FBI agent in Indianapolis as well. Uh, he had floated uh, sort of a job prospect to him uh, working with the gym gymnastics and things like that. And so we were really looking to try to uh, reform the organization which is based in Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. So today on Noon Edition, we are talking with uh, three representatives from the Indianapolis Star, Indy Star reporters who broke the USA Gymnastics uh, mishandling allegations of sexual abuse, and also the editor who led the coverage. And we have an attorney, uh, John Manley, who has represented many of the gymnasts, and you know many of their names from the Olympics and from previous coverage, uh, who were involved in this situation. If you have questions or comments, you can tweet us at Noon Edition, and you can also send questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. Sarah? John, you were talking about just the hundreds of survivors. 
do you know how many USA Gymnastics was actually aware of? I mean, were they aware of just how common this was and how often it was happening? Well, they were aware of hundreds because they had them in their files. And, but the most, I, I think one of the most troubling things, and, you know, it was just alluded to is not only was USA Gymnastics aware that there was likely hundreds of survivors of Nasser and other coaches, but law enforcement was as well. In June of 2015, Allie Raisman, Michaela Maroney, and Maggie Nichols, two Olympic gold medalists and a world champion, all told USA Gymnastics that they were assaulted by Larry Nasser. That was subsequently reported to the FBI, uh, to Jay Abbott, in the, um, in the, who was the special agent in charge of the Indianapolis office. Also present was Fager Baker Daniels lawyers Okay. None of them reported this to Indiana child abuse authorities or anybody else. And the other thing, one of the gymnasts we represent is Simone Biles. Ms. Biles was named as a potential victim uh, by at least one of the three gymnasts who reported, athlete A being Maggie Nichols. She reported that Simone was a victim. It's actually in the notes of Rhonda Fain who took the report. Nobody told Ms. Biles or her parents that Larry Nasser was a molester until 14 months later. I don't understand for the life of me why the Justice Department isn't investigating the Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department. And we know they're investigating the FBI, but in my view, and I speak for me only, there was an absolute conspiracy here by certain elements of Indiana law enforcement and federal law enforcement to cover this up, to protect the USOC. And you know, that's basically the conclusion of the USOC's independent report as well. Um, uh, and given that Indianapolis is, um, you know, to use Steve Penny's term, Sportstown USA, it's very troubling that the head of the Child Protection Unit uh, did nothing to stop this. In fact, it tried to prevent it from coming out. The other thing I'll point out is to, to, to deal with reporting, literally, Indiana's Child Protection Office is in the same building as USA Gymnastics. They literally had to take the elevator down three floors and walk up to the desk and could have reported and they didn't. And so I think, you know, and the significance of that is because they didn't report for 15 months, Larry Nasser molested, continued to molest little girls at Michigan State where he continued to be a faculty member and a doctor. He molested hundreds of children after the FBI knew after USAG knew, and after Fager Baker Daniels knew, none of them reported. Tim, Steve, Marissa, if you guys were in Indiana at the time, I mean, my understanding is Indiana law requires reporting if you know of child abuse. Isn't that, isn't that correct? Indiana law requires anyone who believes a child is being abused or neglected to immediately report it. In fact, there's case law in Indiana where they found that four hours was too long. So the law in Indiana is very, very clear about what should be done when someone receives an allegation. Mm -hmm. I'd add, just add to that, the, the deficiency of the law is that it's a short, um, short look back window. And we actually call it, it's, is it two years, Marissa, I believe? It's two years, yes. And as this was all rolling out, um, about two months before the two-year uh, window told, um, Penny acknowledged that he waited five weeks to notify the FBI. 
Um, we called that to the attention of the Marion County Prosecutor's Office, um, you know, and asked him what they were going to do, and they basically ignored us. So, and they let that window roll out. So there's, you know, no opportunity under state law to have charged pending with failure to report when they were aware of it and, and for whatever reason, not take action. So, um, you know, that, that's a troubling situation. And, and Marissa and I both came to this after covering child abuse and child welfare for years. And the failure to report is a story that we've both written more times than we would like, like to, you know, admit. And it's just, it's a, it's a common theme and it, it's, it's, there's, there's no consequences and very seldom are people charged. And the last I looked at was, well, a class B misdemeanor was like stealing something out of a vending machine. So, um, you know, I think the lawmakers need to take a harder look at that, both the consequences and, and, and the look back period, because so often victims don't come forward quickly. You know, they have to process it, especially young girls like this um, may not even known what happened to them was, was sexual abuse until they, you know, dealt with uh, things as adults or counseling. And that, that's an area I think we're really weak on in Indiana and much of the country. With the statue of limitations, was that the same? And you know, we're talking about some of these happening in Michigan and other states as well. You all know, Tim? Yeah, unfortunately, um, this is John Manley, unfortunately, uh, most of these states, um, the statutes are very short. What is interesting is the law subsequent to this case was changed federally. It is now a felony, uh, federal felony, not to report uh, any, any, um, Olympic or national team athlete um, under an NGB's care, um, thanks to a bill by uh, Diane Feinstein and a, I forget a Republican co-sponsor. So the, law, the federal law has changed. It's much tougher than state law, but of course that can't be applied retroactively. And you know the other troubling thing is you know you you now have I, I would say probably over a thousand children that we know were molested under USAG's care. And the Marion County Prosecutor's Office, the FBI, nobody, with the exception of the State Attorney General's Office in Indiana, has done anything. Um, nobody served a search warrant, nothing. Um, the Indiana Attorney General's Office has actually been very diligent trying to deal with them civilly uh, through you know, the nonprofit status. But the Indiana law enforcement authorities have shown absolutely no interest in this case, which in my view smells to high heaven. You know, I, I would add one thing about why those laws are particularly important is that these institutions have an inherent conflict of interest and they tend to want to, uh, they, they view this as a danger that they will be sued by powerful people. And uh, so when, when a child comes to them, and this, this is a, true of a lot of institutions, they're almost more worried about the scandal and the legal consequences of accusing a powerful man than they are of protecting that child. And it's we've seen it again and again and again across the state. So what it what that does is it in effect raises the bar on probable cause uh, for these men and it get, puts them in a position where they can where these organizations are afraid of them. And, and that's, that's what happened in this situation. And the only, 
and there's this sort of misnomer out there. It came up in the Brett Kavanaugh hearings when the president said, whatever happened to due process. Uh, this uh, Supreme Court nominee was accused by a woman of, of sexual misconduct and the president characterized that as a condemnation that shouldn't happen until some sort of due process had had occurred. My, I would argue that in the case of Larry Nassar, due process did not occur until it became public. And, and so it, these men have to learn to defend themselves. They can't expect these institutions to do it for them. So those, those reporting laws are essential if we're going to weed this out of our society. We're about halfway through our program today. You're listening to New Edition on WFIU, and we have four guests with, uh, I'm Bob Zaltzberg, by the way, and Sarah Whitmire is with me, but we have four guests, Marissa Kwiatkowski, Tim Evans, and Steve Berta, who were all uh, investigative journalists who worked on the case that has turned into Athlete A, a documentary on Netflix, but it's about USA Gymnastics, and it's... Um, it's really failure to, to treat seriously allegations of sexual abuse. And we have John Manley, an attorney for Manley Stewart and Finaldi, who has represented many of the women uh, who have been affected by this. If you have questions, um, you can send them to us at news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Well, I have to say, you have given me several different avenues that I'd really like to pursue. I'm going to, I'm going to step back for a minute and go to the idea of uh, fear, because in the documentary, two other people who are very well known in the gymnastics world, the Carolis, uh, were prominently um, factored in. So how important was their role in what was going on in gymnastics when this was happening? And any of you can take that. You want me to take it or? Sure, John, go ahead. Yeah. Do you want to take it? Okay, so yeah. The, and the film covers this really well. The Carolis um, really became to prominence in 1976 because they coached Nadia Comaneci, who really uh, until really until Simone Biles is widely regarded as the greatest gymnast in, in the history of the sport. And um, they were Communist Party members and they were the hand-picked coaches by Nicolae Ceausescu, who was the Romanian communist Marxist-Leninist dictator, um, who I think arguably is the, the most, was the most repressive regime in uh, Eastern Europe. Unlike many of these other regimes, when the, the Iron Curtain fell in 1989, the people took he and his wife out and shot him. <laughs> um, and um, in 19, uh, I believe 81, uh, the Carolis defected. Um, and the, the, you know, the sort of uh, narrative is they, they defected for freedom, but I, I, I actually believe they defected, and there's evidence believe they defected because they had, fell out of favor with the regime. But what they brought to this country was the Soviet-style um, coaching method. Um, and in the film, there's allegations of physical and emotional abuse that occurred in Romania. And um, 
you know, certainly severe psychological abuse and um, things like food denial, denial of water and an atmosphere of fear. Well, the Crowleys ended up taking over after 1984 with Mary Lou Retton because they coached her. They took over effectively elite gymnastics in the United States. And from um, really the, the 90s all the way through 2016, either Bella Carolla or Marta Carolli was in charge of the U.S. team. And Larry Nasser was, was their hand-picked doctor. Um, Marta clearly relied on him. She was there. And the reason, in my view, this happened, and I can tell you it's my client's views, is because there was such an atmosphere of fear at that ranch. Um, you know, of, uh, you know, you weren't allowed to talk, you weren't allowed to smile, you weren't allowed to say anything, you weren't allowed to express yourself, you weren't allowed to eat what they wanted you to eat. It was absolute and complete control. And, you, and they, they frankly viewed these women not as human beings, but as, a, as an apparatus in a machine. Um, and I'm not surprised they viewed them that way. That's the way they were, they were trained themselves. And Larry Nasser was um, the one bright light at that place. And that's, that's how he got away with, he got away with. At the ranch, at the Corley Ranch that they owned, it, at night, if you had a problem, there was no security guard. If you had a problem, you called Larry. This, this man was treating women in their rooms, in their beds. He was treating them in their hotel rooms. He was assaulting them in their hotel rooms all over the world. And they were under the care of the Corollis. Parents weren't allowed. And that atmosphere uh, is what allowed this to happen. What's interesting about this is now, just this past two weeks, the British gymnastic system is absolutely blowing up with the same types of disclosures that the, these incredible reporters at the Star disclosed. And what we're finding is that this scandal that started with this one story with these, you know, three or four people in Indianapolis, these brave journalists, has now exploded across the world. And we're finding this atmosphere of abuse in not just U U.S. gymnastics and British gymnastics and other sports. And it's a, it's a movement that's spread across the world. So I hope that answers your story. It was a little long-winded, sorry. No, no, that's fine. I, I wanted to follow up on that. I think USA Swimming is involved in some somewhat now, are they not? Is, can somebody talk to that? I'll jump in real quick. You know, yeah. swimming has had problems and a number of the national governing bodies have had problems and it continues to, to roll out. Um, you know, and again, it, it's, I think, anywhere where there's that much control and particularly with younger athletes, um, you know, in swimming, uh, many of the athletes are young, they're not adults. Um, and that was a change with the Crowleys. Um, prior to them, a lot of the Olympic, the uh, American Gymnast Olymp Olympic Olympians were adults or, or much older than these 13, 14, 15 year old girls. The other thing I'd like just to add on to what John and Steve said earlier is, you know, our story kind of a, if you, in, in the public's eye became about Nasser, and, you know, we're the people who expose Nasser. But the reality is that these problems go much deeper than Nasser. They go much deeper than USA Gymnastics. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a, cultural issue and um, you know sometimes we feel like maybe our our message got lost because there was so much so much Nasser and he was undoubtedly horrible and, and probably the worst abuser in the history of sports and maybe you know who knows what what time will tell but 
again, it's not just Larry Nasser. It was throughout the system. And it wasn't just this Allie Reisman and Simone Biles of the world. It was hundreds of little girls, mostly in clubs, gym clubs across the country in Georgia and New Mexico. Um, it's, it's, it's a, was pervasive and there are still a lot of those problems still in, in, in place within the uh, gymnastics and other sports worlds. You know, you know along ahead, those Steve. lines, Marissa did a story uh, in the same year we, we did the Nasser story about a guy, I forget his name now, but he- Ray Adams. Ray Adams. He moved from, from gyms in Missouri to Illinois to Ohio to Florida and was, uh, was accused in every one of these places he went before he was finally, they finally caught him with, with uh, child pornography and he's now in prison. But, but it just showed how nowhere along the line did USA Gymnastics, the USA Gymnastics said, well, that's the individual gyms. That, you know, that's not us. The gyms are privately owned and we can't, we can't police that. But they really could have policed it. They could have tracked his movements and known why he was fired at all these gyms. But that was the culture too. It was pass your problem on to somebody else. And, uh, and that's, I think that permeates it. That it did then, I, I don't know whether it's improved. They, they, they would argue, I'm sure that, that it has, but I don't know. That's well, what, to, to, give, to give you an idea of how bad the culture there was, um, USA Gymnastics has a foundation that has about $17 million in it and they rarely give out money. In, in the late 2000s, they made a pretty sizable $10,000 contribution to a charity in, uh, in Indianapolis. That was the Jared Fogel Foundation. But yes, the same foundation that the subway guy who's a pedophile um, was running and using it to have sex with children. That's, that's the one con big contribution USA Gymnastics gave. I don't believe that's a coincidence. And I think there was a culture of abuse in that organization. I believe, speaking for John Manley only, that um, that that part of that culture still exists, and and, the, and what I mean by that is that they just don't think it's that bad. Um, and for example, they they hired a former federal prosecutor, Deborah. Tim, help me out here, Deborah Daniels. Um, Daniels to do a report, and they committed to to um, implement all of her recommendations, but they haven't done it. So. Um, you know, it, it, I, I don't believe USA Gymnastics should exist. I'm shocked it still does. This is probably a good place to, to just have you explain what happened to Steve Penny. He was USA Gymnastics president. So he didn't come out of this very well, did he? Uh, are you addressing John or? John, yeah, any of you, any of you. But John, go uh, ahead. Marissa, why don't you take that one? Yeah. So Steve Penny resigned as president and CEO of USA Gymnastics in 2017, and then later was arrested and charged with tampering with evidence in Texas relating to documentation that um, had at one time been at the Caroli Ranch. Now, in terms of long-term impact for Steve, it's hard to say because that case still is pending. So we don't know what the outcome of that criminal case will be. Okay. 
So and we also have got a golden parachute on his departure from USA, uh, USA Gymnastics. So we have this case. We have uh, Larry Nasser who was abusing young gymnasts for quite a long time. Uh, you've described a cover-up. Um, I want to ask where Michigan State University factors into all this because Nasser was there for 29 years or something like that. No, he was with the, he was the gymnastics team doctor for 29 years. I'm not sure how long he was at MSU. But, um, and again, whoever has this answer can jump in, but what has Michigan State done to try to make sure that their athletes are safe? And do they, what, what kind of responsibility did they, they bear in the Larry Nasser case? Uh, Tim, Tim, yeah. Tim you, you want to try that? I'll start, but I think John probably has the, the better, more in-depth answer. You know, obviously, when we first started looking at Nasser, there was no trail of any kind of history of reports or uh, malpractice claims or lawsuits or criminal charges. Um, but it later came out that folks at Michigan State had been warned as early as the, uh, I believe, the mid to late 90s that Nasser was uh, molesting children. And there were at least two police reports and at one point Nasser was put on double secret probation um, and couldn't perform perform his procedures without another adult in the room and things like that but none of that was ever really memorialized and and it was also never really enforced and he continued to molest you know children up there until into the 2016s or beyond um, I think there were a number of missed opportunities there early on where uh, for whatever reason they uh, claims against him weren't pursued or weren't taken seriously. And just as a real testament, and I'll hand off to John, you know, one of, the, one of the things that Steve talked about was the due process earlier and, you know, whether people believe molestation, you know, survivors. And Rachel and the others got very lucky that they found a detective up there named Andrea Mumford, who, who um, sorry, I'm getting emotional, was but um, she's know, who, featured. She's featured prominently in the in the video too. Right? Who took the approach? She started by believing, and so often these cases had been started by not believing. But how can we cover this up, or how can we mitigate our damage? How can we not affect our golden goose? And Andrea started by believing, and had a prosecutor who supported that, and they they took the cases and ran with them. And so um, I'll let John feed you on more other details of Michigan State. Yeah, so Michigan State had a really uh, interesting relationship with Nasser. He was on the faculty there. Um, he was indeed the gymnastics team doctor, but he also had uh, a portion of his contract called public outreach. And his contract with Michigan, required him, with Michigan State required him to act as the national team doctor for USA Gymnastics for the Olympic team doctor for the U.S. Olympic Committee and for... Um, uh, as a local doctor at Holt High School. And he was molesting children in all those places. And, and as Tim said, he, he, there were multiple complaints about him, probably one every two years, including a full-blown Title IX investigation in 2014. Um, and without getting into the details, the long and the short of it is it, it was all covered up. And 
what happened at Michigan State is not only did Nasser go to jail, his supervisor, the dean of medicine, was convicted of malfeasance in office and a variety of other crimes, went to jail for a year or two. Um, the gymnastics coach, um, Kathy uh, Clegus, who it was reported to in the 90s, was convicted. Uh, and the president of the university uh, was under indictment, and that was dismissed on legal grounds, although the attorney general's office is appealing it. There were search warrants executed at Michigan State. There was a thorough criminal investigation of everybody involved. That stands in stark contrast to the lack of action by local law enforcement in terms of the police department in Indianapolis and the FBI. Um, again, the only people who have done anything is the attorney general. Um, and, um, you know, it, the, the, the net result is 333 women came forward on Nasser. Michigan State paid a $500 million settlement in 2018, which is the single largest settlement in, in, against the university in American history. Um, and um, uh, subsequent to that time, over 200 more women have come forward alleging that Nasser abused them. And they, you know what we now know is he's the most prolific molester in the history of sport. And with one phone call, Steve Penny, the FBI, Scott Blackman, who is president of the U.S. Olympic Committee, all knew in June of 2015, with one phone call to the Michigan State Police, they could have stopped him in his tracks. And they intentionally didn't cover, not only did they intentionally not call, they let Nasser say, put out a post that he retired. And Fager Baker, he cleared it with Fager Baker Daniels, this is gonna be the cover story. Nothing has happened to the, those lawyers, nothing has happened to Mr. Penny other than a small town Texas VA charging him. Nothing in Indiana has happened to any of those people. And that's a travesty. And it, and it's, it stinks. And the, the message that the government and that law enforcement in Indianapolis is clearly sending is, hey, if you're a big money sports entity and you're coming to town and you're gonna bring us money, we'll sacrifice our children. And, and, and that's really, really screwed up. We've gotten a couple questions and, and um, this is from Patrick. He says, what kind of systemic changes can help prevent this type of widespread abuse, government, police, public, et cetera, below the Olympic level as well. And then he says, is gymnastics particularly affected due to the age of participants or is it other factors? Um, let's see, uh, John, do you wanna start? Sure, I, I, you know, the, my understanding is the Indiana Attorney General's office has given USA Gymnastics a, uh, a list of 18 steps they could take uh, and they haven't taken any of them. A good first step was would to be fully implement the, their own recommendations of Deborah Daniels, which they haven't done. I think any of the, what, what people need to understand that about the Olympic system is there's one path to the Olympics. If you're, a, if you're a fencer, you have to go through USA fencing. If you're a swimmer, you have to go through USA swimming. If you're soccer, you go through USA soccer. There's no other path. And these almost, in almost all these sports now, they, these people start as children. And even the, the clubs they're associated with, whether you're in Nome, Alaska or Indianapolis, Indiana, they're all affiliated with the national governing body, which is selected by the U.S. Olympic Committee. So 
there's young children in every sport. I think elite gymnastics like um, figure skating is very similar. The women are very young that compete. I mean, Simone Biles is 22 and by gymnastic standard, she's, you know, ancient. Um, most of these women peak between 16 and 19 and um, even some as, as young as 15. So you have children that are completely powerless. They have no parental supervision because they're not allowed. And their dream is to get the Olympics. And they, you know, they're, they're put together with these maniacs um, from Eastern Europe uh, and, the, and this pedophile doctor. And, you know, he runs them over. And that's really the story. I, I believe it could happen again. I believe in other, other sports it's happening now um, because the culture doesn't take it seriously. You know, I would add, you know, very specifically to what you're talking about, you know, what reforms need to take place. A lot of the pedophiles that we came across that were different, were different from Nasser. Nasser disguised what he was doing as a medical procedure, but many of them didn't. And uh, they would actually uh, uh, try to endear these young women to themselves, often girls, uh, and uh, in certain ways. They would give them gifts. They would see them alone. They would uh, have horseplay in the gym where they rolled around on, on um, mats and stuff and, and tickle them. And they would, uh, uh, some of them, some of these people would actually live with their coaches because they would be away at a meet and they would stay with them and they would drive them to meets alone and things like that. And USA Gymnastics uh, often, when we would talk to them, said that they couldn't enforce those kind of rules to say, you know, if you get caught, you know, giving gifts to uh, these kids or the, doing the, this, this sort of conduct, we can't do anything about it because the individual gyms are privately owned. Well, we talked to a, a, a lawyer who, and uh, Marissa, I correct, I can't remember her name, but uh, uh, who works with uh, uh, Olympic sports a lot. And uh, she, she gave us a kind of an interesting quote at one point that she called it, that she said that USA Gymnastics could make everybody uh, have a purple lollipop every day to have membership if they wanted to, but they wouldn't, and they wouldn't do it. They chose not to do it. And that was part of the problem that they had, that they wouldn't enforce the very, prohibitions on the very types of behavior that were proven to lead to this sort of thing. Some of that, I believe, they would argue has been uh, uh, put into place. Uh, they did create the uh, what they call the Safe Sports Center, where all of these uh, uh, complaints go. They, uh, they would argue, by the way, just as a counterpoint to some of what John's saying, and I uh, you know, they would argue that they did report to the FBI and that uh, there's a mysterious, for some mysterious reason that 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 fulfilled their obligation. And for some reason, uh, the FBI fell short. Uh, that said, I, I think it's pretty 
clear that uh, there's a lot of ambiguity as to how much reform has really taken place. I wanna get in this other question that we just got from a listener. Wants to know, and maybe Marissa, you can answer this, to what extent are parents responsible? Their underage children were examined with an oversight, without oversight rather, and she says, as an, as an adult, when I get examined for a prostate, there's a witness required in the room. Why wasn't a similar process involving parents utilized? I think that's a, a challenging question because there were, as we know from our reporting and, and what's been out there, that sometimes there were parents in the room and they were positioned in a way that they couldn't see what was going on. And the child in some cases thought that what was happening was okay because my mom is here, clearly she knows what's going on, that sort of thing. But when you talk about parent responsibility, you know, sort of coming back to what Steve was talking about in terms of reforms, you know, there are a lot of other factors that played a role here. For example, one thing that we found again and again with many of these predatory individuals is that they did move from gym to gym and that when allegations of misconduct came up, they would allow that individual to resign rather than be fired. And so they could go to their next place of employment and, you know, if there's a question on the um, hiring form that says, were you fired, they can say no. And we saw that with Ray Adams, we saw that with other coaches that we'd written about as well. And, you know, that's where USA Gymnastics comes in. So there's the individual gym responsibility, the individual responsibilities of these people who receive allegations. But then there's also the responsibility of USA Gymnastics because USA Gymnastics does have the power, as Steve was saying, to revoke the membership of individuals who don't follow the policies that they put into place. And in many cases that we saw that did not happen. Yeah, I, well, wait, I, uh, oh, go ahead, Tim. That, um, you know, th this isn't a situation of parent shaming or anything like that, um, you know, but as a parent, you need to be really cognizant of what's going on. And many of these parents trusted these coaches. We also noted that many of these molesters ingratiated themselves with the families. They spent you know, holidays with them. They helped them work around, you know, the house while they were molesting the daughter on the side. And, um, you know, but parents do have to be aware and, you, and you, you, there are warning signs. A lot of these gyms were closed. Parents couldn't, couldn't come in and watch a practice. Um, you know, parents have got to be alert for the signs of grooming, uh, the gifts to children. Uh, the, this, a lot of these molesters we saw were for photographers and they would want to take pictures of the little girls. They wouldn't let the parents in because she gets self-conscious when I'm taking your picture with mom watching. And as a parent, you've just got to be hyper-vigilant. Uh, again, I don't think, I'm not trying to put any blame on any parents specifically, but just it's, it's a heads up that, hey, you know, wherever there are kids, there are going to be people who want to try to molest them. And as a parent, you've got to be just on it every minute. We, we only have about one minute to go, and I want to get back to the documentary just one more time, um, and perhaps John can answer this, but Athlete A, uh, Maggie Nichols, there is a strong indication from the film that she didn't make the Olympic team because she had uh, blown the whistle on Larry Nasser. True? Oh, that's what the film implicates, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. So uh, in the last uh, 30 seconds here, you know, how important is Maggie to the, the whole story? I mean, the, the film is named after her. Well, I think that, um, 
you know, Maggie would say my story is not more important or less important than any other survivor. But I mean, but for, I think, but for these Olympians coming forward, I don't think this would have gotten the attention it deserved. And um, I think her courage in, in saying this isn't right. And there's no question whether she would have made the team or not. I'll leave that for other people to debate. I know what I think. But there's no question that they retaliated against her. There's no question that they punished her. There's no question that um, they they went after her and her family because Gina Nichols would not be quiet. And um, quite honestly, um, you know, the, the fact that she didn't even make it as an alternate, given that she's the reigning world champion and where she placed in, in the trials, tells you a lot. Hey, and we are, we're, we're going to have to cut you off there, John. We are out of time. Uh, but I want to thank uh, all of you for being here. The uh, documentary on Netflix is Athlete A. The lawyer in the documentary, one of the lawyers, John Manley, attorney for Manley Stewart and Finaldi Lawyers. Thanks for being here, John. The journalists, Marissa Kwiatkowski, Tim Evans, Steve Berta, Mark Alicia couldn't be with us today. From All from the Indy Star, thank you very much for being with us today. For our producers, Benta Boutier and John Bailey, for engineers, uh, Matt Stonecipher and Mike Pashkash. Um, and for my co-host, Sarah Whitmire, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, Fiber Internet, Streaming TV, Home Security, and Automation in Southern Indiana, at smithville.com and from the Bloomington Health Foundation partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org